What's your favorite way to learn? I like graphic novels because I can see who's talking. My grandma reads the newspaper to me. I like movies on TV. I play learning games on my dad's tablet. I like reading plain old regular books with lots of detail. This is Worlds Awaiting, helping children read, write, see, speak, think, and listen. Here's our host, Rachel Wada. Those familiar with the field of children's literature will have heard of our two most prestigious book awards given yearly by the American Library Association. The Newbery Award is given to the most distinguished contribution to literature for children, and the Collicott Award is given to the most distinguished picture book. However, these are not the only children's book awards given by the American Library Association. And while I love to encourage people to read and enjoy the Newbery and Caldecott books, I also encourage people to check out other awards that expand their reading horizons. One of my personal favorites is the Batchelder Award. Books that win this award were first written and published in a different language, and then they were translated into English to be sold here in the United States. I love this award first and foremost because it encourages publishers to translate works into English. The award criteria wants the translation to be true in substance and flavor to the original work, so readers can be assured that the quality of these translations is very high. I also love this award because it gives readers access to works that may not have been accessible to them before. The range and scope of books that win this award is very wonderful to see. In my mind, this award encourages readers to delve into a trove of stories that express the richness of the global society we live in. For example, a now-beloved author, Cornelia Funk, who wrote the book Inkheart, that was made into a movie starring Brendan Fraser, was one author who won this award. For older teens, one recent Bachelor winner that I enjoyed was My Family for the War by Anne Vorhove. This story about a girl who escapes Nazi Germany on the Kinder transport covers the whole of World War II and offers a heartfelt and interesting look at the impact of the war on one child's life. Another favorite for younger children that tackles a very poignant topic is Cry Heart But Never Break by Glenn Ringved and illustrated by Charlotte Pardee which addresses the realities of life and death when four children try to prevent death from taking their grandmother away. But even if these two don't catch your fancy, then we here at Rachel's World suggest you check out the other Bachelor Award winners for a long list of amazing books from which you may just find a new favorite. Does reading really ever make a difference? Ideally, it would help us grow as human beings and better understand what we want to be. And what about the characters in the books we read? Today on Worlds Awaiting, Rachel visits with literacy specialist Jan Birkins, who addresses the topic of reading wellness. In the healthiest sense, books can be a gateway to the world, a doorway into shaping who we want to be. Dr. Jan Birkins has spent her career studying and teaching about how children learn to read, She earned her doctoral degree in curriculum and instruction with an emphasis in reading at the University of Kansas. She taught as an elementary school teacher and was a literacy coach for several years and has published five books, including the best-selling Preventing Misguided Reading. Here's Rachel with Jan Birkins. We're on the phone with Jan today. Welcome, Jan. Hi. Jan, I am so excited today to have you share your expertise with our listeners. 
One of the things that you talk about is reading wellness, which is really taking all of the facets of our reading lives and and bringing them together to be our best reading selves. Could you tell us what does that really look like? Well, you know, Kim Yaris, my co-author, and I, um, we, we kind of arrived at this idea when we were thinking about wellness and mindfulness in our own lives. And um, there's, a, there's just this idea that the absence of sickness doesn't necessarily mean wellness. Um, I think it's Sean Aker who says this in his TED Talk. And um, we really, there seems to be a bit of a mindset in education that basically a kid who doesn't have some kind of a fractured reading process or difficulty with reading is in fact well as a reader. But really, reading wellness is more than just the absence of reading difficulties. Um, it, to be really, really well as a reader, kids will need to want to read, have authors and titles that they love, have a sense of how to find and select books for themselves. They'll be thinking about what they read. You know, um, really, reading is a tool for becoming our best selves, and really, E.E. Cummings has a great quote, and I may not get it exactly right, but it's something to the effect of, it takes courage to grow up to be who we were meant to be, and we really believe that being a reader helps us do that, and so by reading, we discover ourselves and where we want to go in our lives, and we revise our thinking about ourselves. We kind of think of reading wellness as just the whole big picture of how reading becomes woven into all of our lives. That is a perfect way to look at it. I love that <laughs> sense. I love that sense of discovery and that it's something about making ourselves whole and engaging ourselves yeah. in a really fundamental way in, in what we just need to do to live and be and be good. Yeah people and good learners throughout our lives. I I think you're right. Oftentimes we do take that a a little bit too narrowly and look at it as, you know, if we're Mm -hmm. sick or if there's problems along those lines. So when we think about this concept of reading wellness, what type of reader do you think all children could be if we kind of ascribed to this concept of, of the holistic reader? Well, they would be readers who read for pleasure. Um, as well as read for information. They would be reflective readers who use um, text as a way to consider, as you just said, how to be better and better people, whether they're doing that through fiction or nonfiction. They are readers who have a lot of energy around text um, and exploring it. They, you know, it's just these kids who you see who always have a book in their hands or some kind of text in their hands and can talk about what their books are making them think about um, and see it as kind of a gateway to the world, as a, you know, a, a doorway into um, kind of shaping their lives. 
I, I think we would all agree that that's the kind of reader we want our kids to read, that kind of doorway, gateway, and it be the kind of thing that we always see a child with a, a good book in their hands or, or engaging in these kind of reading activities. So I guess the next question then logically is, how do we get all children to be readers like this? You know, it's it's the million-dollar question, right? And And it takes a bit of faith, I think to in the world of such high-stakes accountability, um, pay some attention to reading wellness as well as um, tending to reading difficulties. In the Common Core State Standards, you know, which are, of course, widespread and even in states that have adopted their own standards, in most cases it's simply uh, some minor revisions to the Common Core, you know, it talks about independence and proficiency. And really, that's not a bad, that's not bad terminology because in our minds, independence and proficiency means that you independently choose to read, right? And so um, both at home and in classrooms, it involves empowering kids and, and giving them the tools they need to go to text and select text. And so... An example would be it's very pervasive in schools for kids to read to collect points. You know, I have to read this book because I have to take this particular online test and accrue a certain number of points, and perhaps there's even some kind of a competition. In fact, an excess of this will thwart this independence that we're talking about. And so it makes reading become a chore we do for school versus something that we do to improve our own lives. And so one of the ways is giving kids choice. Um, And an add-on to that is making sure that there's lots of times when they are reading and the quote-unquote accountability for that is simply a conversation like, how do you like your book and what is your book making you think about versus having to answer a multiple choice test because if reading is all about taking a quiz then it becomes defined as something that's attached to school and we actually deter this independence and proficiency. Bravo, bravo. I could not agree with you more. <laughs> it, it, it interests me so much that in schools, a lot of the things that we do to try and encourage this kind of reading wellness are actually counterproductive in the reading wellness. And I am very much an advocate for doing away with those point-based tests and multiple choice tests and those kinds of award systems that really don't develop long-term love of reading. They're not sustainable. Yeah, they aren't. And it's funny to me that people think they are. It's a a kind of crazy dichotomy to me that we're we're using techniques that aren't as as effective. So what are some of those ways, though, that we can kind of honor that interest and passion and and agency and choice that that children should have of their reading, particularly when we're talking um, about in-school reading or maybe even just out-of-school reading for, like, the reading that they would do at home or with friends? Um, you know, I think those two are so connected. It starts by seeing the kids, like, really as individuals and getting to know them. Because if I know that this particular child is interested in dogs, then I can really be on the lookout for texts that 
that he or she may be interested in. And there's nothing more powerful than saying to a kid, you know, I found this book and it really made me think of you and I could not wait to share it with you. And I just want to have a conversation. After you read it, talk with me. I'm very curious about whether you liked it. And if you did, we can find more like this. You know, so it begins, and that's a conversation that a parent can have or a teacher can have. Um, it begins with really seeing kids and, and knowing them well. Um, and then it also has a lot to do with choice. I was reading... Um, Oh, I'm not going to remember the name of the book or the author. I think it's Faster, Better, Smarter. But, you know, he has a chapter in there on motivation where he talks about any choice really engenders motivation. And just the opposite, the removal of choice mutes motivation. And so if we want kids to be readers, we've got to give them choice. The other, of course, is access. Kids need access to books, and if they have someone knowledgeable of titles and authors in their world, then, you know, you can facilitate that discovery, you know, constantly putting books in front of kids. I'm fortunate because, you know, I'm in this line of work where I'm constantly reviewing books for publishers, and so there's just always a package of books arriving at my door, and I have sons who are, you know, going through them and getting excited about particular titles or not about other titles. And so there's just this constant access and exposure. So that's a big one. And I guess Kim Harris and I, our most recent book, uh, Who's Doing the Work, is all about learned helplessness and the way that we make decisions for kids and remove this sense of empowerment. So, you know, stepping out of the way and letting the kids figure some things out for themselves around what they're interested in, too. Those are some amazing tips. I really appreciate that. You provide these insights for us to help us better see what reading wellness is, and I truly appreciate the time you took today to help us get a better concept of some of the things we can do to help our children be excellent readers and be healthy readers at the same time. Thank you so much, Jan. Oh, Rachel, thank you for having me. It was my pleasure. Jan Birkins, reading expert and author, discussing reading wellness and helping our children to be their best reading selves. Next, Rachel chats with Jessica Frizzello and Sebastian Shiraishi from the BYU Education and Juvenile Literature Library. They discuss an innovative picture book entitled Do Is Talk, written and illustrated by Carson Ellis. We're in studio today for a book chat with Jess and Sebastian. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks. All right. We're going to talk about Do Is Talk. So dive in, Jess. Tell us what it's about. Well, Do Is Talk by Carson Ellis is a picture book that just tells this little story of these insects who discover um, a sprouting plant and it grows and they, you know, they build a fort and different things happen. It's it's um, really beautiful, almost like a wordless picture book, except that the story is told through a dialogue that is an invented language. And so, you know, even the title of it, Do Is Talk, doesn't quite translate into anything directly, but the general idea is, what is that? So, Sebastian, okay, you encountered this picture book with this invented language. What, what did you think when you first saw it? To be honest, when I first finished the book, 
I feel excited, proud, and pretty smart because I I managed to understand everything the little insects were saying. Um, like Jess said, it was a made-up language, but it made sense, uh, funnily enough. I thought it was a perfect book. I thought it was just great illustrations. You didn't really need the words, but at the same time, they help you understand kind of what they were trying to say. It's a little hard concept to explain, but once you start reading the book, you kind of just dive into it and start reading and try to kind of decode and and infer what the what they're trying to say. So I thought it was just amazing. It was an amazing book and it was pretty interesting. I love that sense of inference that you mentioned because that is one of the cool things about this book to me is you could translate it directly, right? You could go through and say this is a translation. But part of it is it's just fun to kind of infer what they're saying mm-hmm. and, to, and to imagine what it is they're discussing with this, with this fun, invented language. And I think it, it partially conveys the emotion, you know, with the exclamation points and the things they're trying to say. So, Jess, what did you... What did you think of this invented language? How did it enhance the experience for you? You know, as as a linguist, I was really intrigued. At first, I didn't realize that it was an invented language. And so I did Google what everything was um, and quickly found out that, no, you know, the author invented this. But I loved it. I love how it gives a deeper meaning to what is language? How do we communicate with people who don't speak our same language? You know, how is it possible that our brains decode what is being said? And how do we use gestures and imagery and, you know, context to create that story and to immerse ourselves in the story? That really is one of the key points of this book for me is that the images really are so important to telling the story. So talk a little bit about the pictures. What did you think about the art and the pictures in the book? One thing I love about wordless picture books in general is you don't really have the text to explain your plot or your story or define your characters. And so I think this book, although it does have text, follows that same pattern of, you know, every detail becomes really essential to how the characters are placed in context with each other and how you move from panel to panel or from page spread to page spread in this case. Um, But I love how each character is unique and yet there is this cohesion and harmony throughout the book. And I love how she also is showing kind of a pattern of the seasons. You know, it's day and it's night and it's day and the seasons are changing. So there's there's a lot. And each time I, I read the book, I find something new that I didn't notice before. I love the way she uses color in the book, too. I, and I think she uses color a lot to show the change of seasons and the night and day. But she also uses white space. How did you respond to that because there's like two sides to the page and there's space in between and and I think that adds an interesting element to it what what are your thoughts Definitely. along those lines white space I think it's helped her um, helped us the readers focus in what she was the message each page was trying to convey for example well I don't know if you guys noticed but it's the same place the same little tree trunk and the same and the same insects but in each different page, you you, you want to focus on something different. So she uses a white space so that the reader's attention just goes to, like, the place that she wants it to be. So I felt that that was pretty interesting. The second time I read the book, I didn't really focus on what she was trying to um, 
to make us uh, see for see. And I just like Jess said, I noticed different things like, oh, it's night or, oh, there's there's a little insect playing a, a violin on the on the mm-hmm. roof of the house or little things like that that are like amazing and that you don't catch the first time. There is just so much depth to this book because of all of the ways that she engages your senses with the color and the illustrations and then also the the text and the the funny language. I think it's a it's an amazing kind of combination of all of those things. So Jess, who do you think would be like the readership for this book? I mean, we obviously enjoyed it and we're a diverse readership. <laughs> yeah. But do you think there is a particular audience that might really engage with this book? You know, I would say readers maybe five years or younger would really like this book because it's something that they can read by themselves and they can decode by themselves. And it's fun to say the words out loud. You know, it's very phonetic. And then, you know, the story is, is cute and the illustrations are are very clean. And I think they would easily be able to follow the story and become engaged. I think that's really true, too, that this it does have a wide readership, but particularly the younger kids, it, mm-hmm. it would really attract them. What was it? Was there something specific, though, that kind of as an adult, Sebastian, that really attracted you to this book? Or do you think that there is a reason that adult audiences should engage with this book? Well, I'm from a different country. English is my second language. And just going back 15 years ago, I started learning English and just trying to in fair and decode this book kind of brought me back to the starting to learn a new language or starting to learn my own language and saying this is fun I, I, I'm actually good at this I'm I'm starting to to understand and that feeling I, I think it doesn't matter how old you are you you want to have that feeling so as an adult that was this book gave me that gave me that sense of oh i i'm actually learning something new i i find it fun and and it helps me with my decoding skills too so that's that's such a great personal connection thank you for sharing that no sebastian problem. because i really i really think that's one of the fun things about this book is that it really can show you that how that feels right i don't know this language and i'm experiencing something new and that's a fun experience to have like oh i'm i'm actually doing this i'm actually understanding what's going on even mm-hmm. though I may not know it. And I think that helps us to kind of build empathy and understand other people um, around us. So I think that's a great way to look at it. Thanks, Sebastian. All right, Jess, as we round up today on this fun chat about this amazing book, what do you think people should know? What is one thing we haven't talked about that you think people should know about this book? In this book, I think that parents and educators, librarians, kids should really take advantage of this opportunity. It bridges the genre between wordless picture books and, and regular picture books with text and and really just enjoy the immersion of the story and the creativity. And, you know, I think it would be a really great way to be a, an activity where you could create your own story and start doing your own language. And And I think it also shows... Language isn't as strict and prescriptive as we sometimes teach our kids that it is or that we grew up believing, and that language really is freedom and freedom of expression. It's just another way to connect with someone and to communicate how you're feeling, and I think that both the illustrations and the language in this book does an excellent job of that. And I 
I didn't know it was that short. Obviously, it's a kid's book, but as as you're immersed in this book and you kind of see the story going and unfold, you realize it's over sooner than you than you think or sooner than you want it to be. So maybe parents at home should also know that uh, it's not a hard book to read at all. They can read it with their kids, to their kids, and yeah, it's it's a fun book. I just I don't want to say more because I don't want to say the whole don't st- tell the whole story, but for sure. When you can start over again if you're sad that it's yeah, over. that's what I did. It's just a cycle. <laughs> yeah. Yep. So the only negative, we could have had more. It yeah. Ends, yeah. It ends too quickly. Do is Wait, talk too. <laughs> do is talk too. Yeah. Let's, let's, let's go with that because it sounds like at least the three of us would be totally in to the sequel to Do Is Talk. Yeah. Thank you so much for having this book chat today. Rachel Wadham with coworkers at the BYU Library Jessica Verzello and Sebastian Shiraishi chatting about the picture book Do Is Talk by Carson Ellis. Now we finish up this installment of Worlds Awaiting with Whitney Gibbons, assistant producer of Thinking Aloud on BYU Radio. She shares her passion for reading and writing and her hopes of seeing her own work eventually published. I have always been a reader, so I'm the oldest, so I got I think probably I think the oldest child gets a little bit more attention because um, you're the only one around. So my parents they're always reading to me right off the bat. I think Magic Treehouse was my favorite in elementary school, and that was already kind of the more informative book, right? Where it was giving you facts about these different places. By the time I was in middle school, I loved animals, and I would go to the library, and I knew where the animal section was in the library, and I would go straight to the back, and they would have all of these adult nonfiction books about all kinds of animals I would check them I would check out all the books I hadn't read already I would take home this big old stack and I would read all of them and I would actually sometimes compile essays on the different books that I'd read uh, there was one time when and I don't remember why but I checked out all of these books on beekeeping and I compiled an informative long style essay as like a 13 year old on beekeeping with illustrations <laughs> With illustrations, With illustrations, too. I would draw out the little, like, diagrams of, like, beehives and stuff that they had in the book. So I was this ridiculous child that would just oh. consume information, and I just loved it. I just loved it so much. Well, and you've mentioned to me that um, in junior high, you wrote some books. I mean, one of them is The Beekeeping, mm. and what, there were a couple other titles you mentioned. You did two or three books. So I did a pretty good one on beekeeping, and I did another one on keeping quail, and I did a short one on alpacas, because I actually worked with alpacas at that time. I would volunteer on a farm that was nearby my house. And then you'd illustrate, you said, these little books. I do, yeah. I have always been artistic as a kid. I was always drawing all over everything. I've always been a really visual thinker, and that love for illustrating, I think, has kind of translated to now I'm studying illustration as my minor. So while writing is kind of the track, like as an English major, that's what I plan to do for my career, art is also a really fun side skill that I have. Well, and um, I've looked at your drawings. You keep a little book, and I bother you every day and say, do you have something new? You mentioned that um, you're writing books, and, and you're currently trying to, you've completed a book, 
meaning you've stopped, finished writing it, but there's a whole process, right, that you're going through right now to get it published? I have definitely a love of nonfiction, of just information and knowledge, but there's also definitely like a, a more fun fiction, fantasy, science fiction side. I have an aunt who is a published author. She writes YA literature. And as a teenager, I got to kind of see her go through that process and be published. And it was like, oh, real people can publish books. So growing up, I was always just, yeah, I'll do that too. They say it takes about eight years of practice before you're good enough to be published in fiction or, um, in fiction writing. I've been writing for about eight years. So I'm in that exciting point where I've practiced for years and years. I've gone to so many conferences and classes, and I've actually just produced a lot of word count, you know, just getting a lot of words on the page over the years. I do have a manuscript that I have finished and I've polished. I've written a couple manuscripts, but this was the first one where I felt comfortable enough with the quality that I'm actually, I am. I'm querying it to agents right now, and that's really exciting because it's just having joy in the journey, and it's fun to have gotten this far. So it's really, it's really fun. It brings me a lot of joy. Whitney Gibbons, assistant producer of Thinking Aloud on BYU Radio, talking about her love of books and writing and the process she is going through to find a publisher for her first book. Thanks for listening to Worlds Awaiting. Tune in Saturdays at 1.30 p.m. and weekdays at 8.30 p.m. Eastern on BYU Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 143, on the TuneIn app and at byuradio.org.